Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robert Landau grew up in Montreal, Canada, and has lived in the northern Canadian mining towns, the deep south of the panhandle of Florida, and many of the western states, including Portland, Oregon, where he currently lives. With four released albums of solo acoustic guitar-driven songs, he has led the troubadour's life, playing in crowded saloons, vibrant music festivals, honky-tonks, and empty coffee houses across North America for over 20 years. His songs are driven by complex characters, romantic imagery, and an existential spirituality that captures the listener's imagination. He joins us on Backstory Song for a discussion of his songs from his newest release, A Thousand Little Lies, and some of his audience favorites from his earlier albums. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am so happy to have on our show singer-songwriter Robert Landau. Welcome, Robert. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. So, Robert, you describe yourself as a Can-American. That's a person who's from both Canada and America. Yes, I'm actually from Montreal originally. Uh, I've been living in the U.S. for about 20 years now. Kind of came up with that idea because the kind of music I play, they use the term Americana, but didn't feel authentic. So I had to put my Canada side in there as well. We obviously have many Canadians like Gordon Lightfoot and Neil Young and many others who cross the border. But what would you say is the difference between a Canadian and an American? You know, it's funny. Uh, first, I'll tell you, you never feel more Canadian than when you move to the U.S. Canada's got a lot of places, east to west, from French to, you know, prairies to out in the west and, you know, the French Canada, the east and the maritime provinces of the far east. Everybody's got their own identity. But one thing that holds Canadians together is how different we are from Americans. If I had to put it down to something simple, Canadians, we have rednecks, we have gun lovers, we have hippies, we've got left wing, right wing, but people are just nicer about it. It's not life and death. Everything isn't life and death. And it's funny, when you read the Globe and Mail, which is like the national paper, 
felt like the Wall Street Journal kind of thing. They'll talk about a politician, but they'll call him Mr. Whatever, or Mr. So-and-so, as opposed to, you know, you read the USA Today and they're all teasing and taunting the politician when they talk about him. So that, that is so Canadian of you to say that Canadians are nice, but you're not saying Americans are not nice. You're just saying Canadians are nice. Yeah, they just don't climb into the gutter, into the ditch as deeply as an American will when they don't agree. That's, that's the biggest thing. Interesting. Interesting. So you grew up in Montreal. Are you bilingual? You know, I used to be. So graduate from high school and you get your high school diploma, but you also get what's called a bilingual certificate. It shows that you are fluently bilingual and you can't even graduate high school unless you speak French equally as well as you speak English. But 20 years later, I confess I've lost a lot of my vocabulary and I would not call myself bilingual anymore, although I can't understand it. I know just enough French to impress my kids uh, when I'm ordering in a restaurant when we're visiting Montreal. Great. So you have a new album out, A Thousand Little Lies, uh, your fourth album. And on it is a song about Montreal. You write a lot of songs about places and relationships, I found, in listening to your work. And sometimes both (laughs) in a single song, which I love. You know, I think songs are rooted in those two things more than anything else, perhaps. And so one of the songs on the new album is Montreal Tonight. Thinking of leaving Montreal tonight Not sure where I'll go to Not sure yet what feels right All that I lost here Hits me straight in the eyes I'm thinking of leaving Montreal tonight All of my old friends Have moved up or moved on Doctors and lawyers Leaders and pawns Some never grew up And are just hanging on Some of them vanished Some are older than God It don't make no difference How things used to be I can't roll back time Cause time rolled over me To have AJ To help keep my mind right We'd sit on his front porch Talking in the faded light And machine gun Irene Bloody Mary in her hands Try to keep me honest With all her demands So tell me, what's the backstory of this song? Two ways of writing a song, right? One is you write from your own experience I call that the Warren Buffett way of writing a song. You know, he says you invest in things you know that you that you use as opposed to theoretical things. 
And then the other is you put on a character. So I think the songs that come most naturally to most people, but are maybe even the hardest to write are the personal songs about yourself. So this is Montreal Tonight is based on a real experience. I was in Montreal. I spent a lot of time there. Uh, my mom uh, passed away a year from June, I guess. So almost a year and a half ago. And she had just, you know, years of a myriad of, you know, different kind of aches and pains and surgeries and all that kind of stuff. And if anybody who's ever had a, somebody who's been in convalescence or having extended ailments, you feel relief for them when they finally go. Um, so I was, uh, this was also the first experience that I had. I mean, you know, you grow, you live long enough, you always attend funerals. And this was the first one where I had to work with my sister and we had to actually be the adults and arrange everything. So that was a whole new experience. So I wrote this song when I got back to Portland, Oregon, where I live. And it was just, you know, driving through the town and just feeling how things have kind of moved on without you in this town. You know, I have a lot of my best friends still live there. Um, I had a wonderful support group there, but it's not where you live anymore. It's still always where I'm from, but it's not where I live anymore. So it's just kind of a song that reflects on that kind of change where you don't really know what's going to happen next or where you're going to go or what you're going to do about it. The only thing you know is it's time to move on from this place. One of the things I love about the song is the pause in it. And you do this really well in your music which almost makes you think about the lyric. There's, you know, I'm thinking of leaving pause Montreal tonight. Not sure where I'll go to pause. Not sure yet what feels right. I love that space that you leave in there to make you think about the lyric. Thank you. You know, that was a a learned approach. Like I'm a musician and I play live by myself, you know, a one man show. I'm no, uh, Jimi Hendrix, where I do 10-minute solos, you know, it's kind of acoustic, folky, Americana kind of stuff. And I've always tried to be aware of not having too many open spaces in my shows because I want to keep people engaged. One thing I learned, there's, a, there's an artist called Mason Jennings, and he has a song called Darkness in the Fireflies. That song taught me how to put spaces in music. Now, that song doesn't have a lot of space in music, but the concept of the song is the beauty of a firefly isn't the light, it's the darkness in between the lights of the fireflies. That's the beautiful thing. So having patience when you're performing a song or writing a lyric and allowing for that room, it does exactly what you describe. It kind of gives the person a chance to connect in their own way and to think about what they're listening to. And I can't roll back time because time rolled over me. Love that line. Is that what you're thinking as you're riding in the car? <laughs> Well, I was just thinking like um, the people that I know there, I've known them my whole life. I mean, I literally have a friend I met in nursery school. We skipped kindergarten together and went to grade one together. Like I know these people my whole life. It's just interesting to watch how everybody kind of evolves. One of the things that's interesting about growing up is, you know, I remember being a kid and thinking, you know, my parents were social workers and, you know, money was tight and you think life is simple when you're an adult. Ah, you go to work, you have a job, you have your kids, you pay your house, you go on vacation, but you don't know all the stresses and nuances about that stuff. You know, my parents, like I said, were in the social services, and I had a friend Ed who was parents whose dad was made a lot of money, and he was in a business. And I thought, oh, it must be so good to have money and to not worry about money anymore. But you know, years later, I got into business myself, and I mean, I know you've got a business background. It's never secure. You're always bad years, bad quarter, 
looking for clients. Like it's not less stressful. That was one thing that is confusing when you go back home. You see these people who uh, you know them in one capacity and then you see them in a totally different. Another comment about that line is I've realized that people don't go gradually. There's these like, it's almost like these really tall stairs where you make leaps and bounds in your personal development. And the milestones that you think about when you're younger that are going to make you into an adult, they're not really what you think they are. So for example, I remember, you know, feeling like an adult and then I didn't really feel like I took a giant step of growing up when I left Montreal and moved to Vancouver, like leaving your hometown. That's a big milestone. Uh, having a parent die, that's a big moment of growth and milestone. So that's just kind of a reflection on that situation or that idea. You say all that I lost here. What did you lose there? Uh, both my parents. Oh, yeah. Hits me straight in the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've visited there every year since I left, like I said, over 20. I think I left uh, Montreal in 1998. And every time you go, there's something that's different that you lose. Even my closest friends, you lose a certain connection with them because you're not there on the day to day. There's places that you like to frequent that aren't there anymore. And you're not crying and sad about it, but it's a noticeable thing that's missing. So you talk about friends and places here. You mentioned I used to have AJ to help keep my mind right. One of my favorite lines from the song and machine gun Irene, bloody Mary in her hand, tried to keep me honest with all her demands. Who are these people? So, yeah. <laughs> so AJ is my dad. It's, he went by Jerry, but Abraham Joseph was his official name. You know, I used to have AJ to keep my mind right. We'd sit on the front porch and talk into the fading light. The front porch is a euphemism for just when we would connect. I used to have a job where I would drive a lot all around the south, in the small town south when I lived in Atlanta. And in between my three, four hour drives, I'd call him and we would just talk about everything. And he was always a great guy to give you advice. He was a social worker, but he was almost like a therapist. The way he would kind of help you see things into the light. Machine Gun Irene is my mom. This is actually a funny story. When she was, uh, I, I lived in Eugene, Oregon for a while. And this was after my dad passed away. And she said, you know, I really, really want to go to Vegas. I've never been to Vegas. And I really want to go. So I was like, all right, we'll go to Vegas. So she was coming to visit. She flew to Eugene, spent a night, and then we hopped on a plane to Vegas together. We landed at 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And you can't check into your hotel until about 3. So rented this van so we can get around. As we're driving around, I'm trying to figure out how to amuse her. I'm kind of giving her a lay of the land because I go to Vegas once a year with those high school friends that I talked about earlier. So I'm pretty familiar with the town. And we're driving down the highway and they have a lot of very interesting billboards. So I'm like, hey, do you want to go to see a uh, strip club? Hey, do you want to go and uh, sell your jewelry? Hey, do you want to go shoot a real machine gun? And then she said, yes. I said, what? She goes, yeah, I'd like to shoot a machine gun. <laughs> she passed on the other things, but the machine gun caught her attention. <laughs> yeah, I was, it's my 72-year-old mother who's never touched a gun in her life. And uh, I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I said, okay. So we went to one of these places and I got her the uh, gangster package. <laughs> it cost about 100 bucks and she could shoot a Tommy gun, literally like Al Capone shot. You get a 45 and you get a semi-automatic handgun and you get a more modern machine gun. And she shot all that stuff. And she thought it was the greatest thing. And she made me call her machine gun Irene for the rest of the day. Wow. And she tried to keep you honest with all her demands. And you did stay honest when she had that machine gun in her hand, I bet. <laughs> well, and, and so the Bloody Mary part is my mom never drank. 
except growing up, we'd have a barbecue in the summer once a week. And she was such a lightweight. She would have like a Bloody Mary. So sometimes she'd go crazy and have two drinks. And we'd call her a drunk and an alcoholic and make fun of her in all a good-natured way. So that's another memory about her. And then the comment about trying to keep me honest with all her demands is uh, she was a demanding woman. She had lots of complaints. One of the milestones that I think that you realize your parents are human. They're fallible. So these demands that I grew up with, these arguments that we used to have, I mean, I was in my 30s before I came to the conclusion, realized that this is just who she is. And I, I, can't, I have to navigate through it because just because somebody's rubbing you the wrong way doesn't mean they're intending to. It's just how they view the world. That paragraph kind of tries to capture all that. Wow. And then the second component is the old bar that became a shoe store. Is that a specific place in your Montreal? It was a place called JR's Country Bar on Sherbrooke Avenue. So country music is not prevalent for, in Montreal. And I didn't even discover it until I was like 20, probably 1920. There was this one place called JR's Country Bar, kind of walking distance from my apartment where I lived. And it was a cool old dive bar where they'd have karaoke and they would have the occasional country band. And I happened to notice on this particular trip, I had to go to run an errand related to the estate. And I went parked and walked by what used to be JR's and it was a shoe store. And I was like, oh man, what a shame. Like these old landmarks are just disappearing. It's happened across America and certainly COVID hasn't helped. And we're going to be very interested to see which ones stay alive through the pandemic. Absolutely. When did you start writing songs and why? This must have occurred back in Montreal, I assume? It did, you know. So I've been a fan of music my whole life. Somebody had once asked me, like, who are the most influential people in your life? And I said, my dad and Bruce Springsteen. So my dad, for the reasons I described, but Bruce Springsteen, I mean, I had an uncle, my mom's brother, Uncle Nelson. He was like that cool uncle. I'll let you drive my car in the parking lot, even though you're only 11. Uh, let's have fried chicken at, you know, after dinner at, uh, when, while I'm babysitting you, I'll order fried chicken. Like, he was that guy. But he got me and my sister into music. Somehow we got into Bruce Springsteen, and he took us to, I don't think it exists anymore, Sam the Record Man, which was a kind of a national chain music store, kind of like an HMV kind of thing back in the day. And I bought Styx's uh, album, I forget what it's called, but it had that song, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto on it. And my sister bought The River under my uncle's recommendation. He's like, you gotta buy this record. Those were the two records he recommended? Well, I, I, he didn't recommend the, the, uh, the sixth one. <laughs> he didn't recommend the sixth one. Because no, that's no. Not, not per se their best-selling album. <laughs> no, but it was a hit on the radio at the time. But I, and I used to sit there with the record player and listen to it. And this is back when you had get a full-blown album. And then Bruce Springsteen always had a pullout where you had all the lyrics. It kind of blew me away reading those lyrics. We ended up getting all his albums. Springsteen really taught me how to be a man. It's like, life is hard. But be hopeful, be tough, but be respectful. There's so many lessons that he taught me. And I started to get into trying to kind of find my own way in the world. And I actually still have a binder that I'm looking at here in my workspace, handwritten poetry I wrote in high school. That is so embarrassingly, ridiculously bad. Yeah, but that's where you start, right? You got to start. Do it by doing it. Then I didn't start writing any music until I was 16 years old. I was a counselor at a day camp for five-year-old kids was my group. Once a week, we would have music class. We'd go to the trailer, and there was this guy, Mark, and he had a bunch of little guitars, and he would show the kids how to play music. And I 
never thought that I could actually play an, an instrument. I would like monopolize his time. Like, show me that chord. What does that mean? And just, if I could ever nail one chord, I was like, oh, my God, it sounds so good. And it was a couple years later that for my 18th birthday, I asked my parents, I said, I want a guitar. They got me a guitar. My friend Mark Miller, who he's a fellow left-handed guitarist, so I would go to his house and he would just show me chords. Once I knew three chords, I thought, okay, I can start writing songs. And that's kind of how it started. That's all you need, right? <laughs> yeah. Technically, you just need one. Well, <laughs> it helps to know three. Yeah, exactly. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Southern town is lonely and exposed. I gave the old man on the corner my last bottle of red wine. He cracked it open, took a swig, and said, Son, we'll be just fine. And it's goodbye, Tallahassee. I'm leaving you tonight. Gonna drive up to Atlanta, try and catch that final flight. There's a cat for in my rear view, a pretty woman on my mind. Gonna get back up to Portland, leave my troubles far behind. My job here at the sawmill has been keeping me alive. There's comfort in the sawdust when I make those bad mills fly. Southern Pine has secrets, but none of them are mine. I gave them up so long ago, I feel empty all the time. And it's goodbye, Tallahassee, I'm leaving you tonight. I'm going to drive up to Atlanta, try and catch that final flight. There's a cat four in my rear view, a pretty woman on my mind. Gonna get back up to Portland, leave this hurricane behind. You also spent time in Tallahassee, Florida. Yes. In your shows, one of the most popular songs with the audience is your song, Tallahassee. So tell me about this and why it's so popular. And Well, why it's popular, I, I can never predict or know. Because songs that I think are amazing, nobody wants to hear, and songs that I think are silly and fun, people love. But I think people connect with it because I tell the story about how that song got written. So I was working as a consultant, my day job. I was working in a small town about 45 minutes north of Tallahassee, and I would stay in Tallahassee at night. And I flew in from Portland into Atlanta, into Tallahassee, and I was at the mill. It was a sawmill that I was working at for the day, or for the week, I should say. I flew in on like a Monday and they were like, oh, there's going to be some bad weather in the South. 
And then by the time I landed, it was like, oh, there's a tropical storm in the sky. And then by the time I got to the mill that day, they were like, oh, it's a category one hurricane. And it just kept on building and building. And by the end of Monday, they were like, it's going to be a category three or four hurricane. And the operation had to shut down. And we're all told to kind of evacuate. And uh, I decided, and I used to live, I lived for five or six years in Atlanta. I mean, I went camping in a tropical storm and just sat there with the bottle of Jack Daniels in my lawn chair under a 20-foot tarp and just loved the intensity of the weather. Like, it, big storms didn't scare me. My thought was I could either get out of Dodge or I could just hole up in the hotel. So I said, you know, I'm going to see this through. So I went to the store. I got a couple bottles of wine. I charged up all my devices so I could watch Netflix if the power went out. I got myself a like an extra large pizza. I'm like, ah, I'll, I'll be able to eat this hot or cold for the next few days. Power goes out. No big deal. I said, all right, I'm going to hole up here. So I got up like in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. This is the fashion of the times. Once you, <laughs> once you, once you hit your 40s, <laughs> I happened to turn on the uh, TV. It was on the news channel. And it said, oh, five more miles per hour. And this hurricane is a Category 5 hurricane. And that actually kind of freaked me out. Because Category 5, I mean, that, that tears buildings down. So I decided, uh, I got on the phone with the airline, and they were like, you can get on this flight or that flight. So I was like, all right, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. So I packed up my stuff, and I remember it was about 3.30 in the morning. As I was leaving the hotel, trying to figure out what to do with these bottles of wine that I had, or one and a half bottles left, or maybe it was just one, I don't remember. <laughs> and there was this old guy standing out in front of the hotel, smoking cigarettes. And I said, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, I work for a company that we do the boarding up of buildings. And I just, you know, get ready for my shift. I said, oh, you want this bottle of wine? He said, yeah, sure. And I said, you know, actually, in my room, I have like a pizza. Do you want that? You can have it for lunch. He's like, sure. Okay. Before we left, and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm going to go back to Atlanta and get out of here before it's too bad. He said, don't worry. It's going to be all right. We live through this all the time. So that's just kind of the... uh, you know, there's a lot of truth in that actual song. So when I play it, then it kind of tells that story. Maybe they like it because they don't have to interpret it too much. <laughs> it's just kind of the story of what happened. My favorite line in the song is, there's comfort in the sawdust when I make those band mills fly. This southern pine has secrets, though none of them are mine. Yeah. I just love the metaphor of that. What are the secrets of the southern pines? I guess maybe you don't know. Well... That's kind of a play on, uh, so I worked in uh, sawmill consulting, so helping operations run better. And when I lived down on the West Coast in Vancouver, I worked all around the Pacific Northwest. Then when I moved to the South, the clients down there thought that what they did was completely different than anything I had ever done before. They were like, yeah, yeah, you know how to cut pine and dug fur, but you don't know Southern pine. Southern pine is different. It's got its own intricacy. And it was like, what are you talking about? You're putting a saw into a piece of wood. And yeah, there's science around it, but it's not that different. So that was one element of it. Um, And the other element of it was just, um, like one thing I loved about moving to the South, I moved there for work. My boss said to me, hey, you want to move to the Southeast? We want to open an office there. I said, Asia? And he said, no, Atlanta. (laughs) The other Southeast. Exactly. (laughs) All right. I like this kind of music. I'm in. Now, South has some, they call it the dirty South. They call it, you know, there's all kinds of nicknames for the South, but it is the most complicated place. It's like a different planet from the rest of the country. For sure. Like you'll drive through somewhere. Like here's a, this is an actual example. I, I used to drive from my motorcycle wherever when I could 
everywhere around itself because it's just the weather's perfect for it. I was driving with a friend of mine from Atlanta to New Orleans. We were going to go see uh, Steve Earle at the House of Blues. He was doing it alone, an acoustic set. It was very exciting. We crossed the Mississippi River into Mississippi. Like, I'm not a superstitious guy. I'm not a, you know, third eye kind of person. But as we entered this little town, there was a heaviness in the air that was incredibly profound. My friend and I pulled over to get a drink because it was, you know, 5,000 degrees, so we needed to hydrate. And I looked at him, I said, did you feel that? And he said, yeah. Like, the feeling was bad stuff had happened in this town. Huh. And it's lingering in the air. The humidity of the air was different. It was just different. So you get those feelings in different parts of the South. So Southern Pine has secrets. That's kind of a, a nod to that as well. Yeah. And you do a good job of uh, the setting the setting with the Spanish moss on big oak trees and kudzu on the vine. I had to look up what a kudzu looks like, but I've yes. seen it before. I yes, yes. But that's only down there, right? Yeah, you see it there, down there. You see Louisiana's got kudzu. And- that whole Southeast is it's where that stuff is. Why does the audience love this song? It tells a story of an escape. In a way, it's very overt in the way the story is told. And then there's other lines like the Southern Pine has secrets that none of them are mine. Like makes people wonder what those secrets are. But you left Tallahassee and you moved to Portland, Oregon at some point. You wrote a song that's on the new album called Landmark Saloon. I've been picking on this old guitar for most of my life Writing songs and singing my way across the land Making dozens of dollars, enough for gas and strings each time If it don't seem enough, then you wouldn't understand You gotta play it with your heart, you gotta sing it with your soul you gotta ride it cause it just needs to be said When I see a toe a-tapping or a tear fall from an eye There ain't nothing I would want to do instead I played a set of Tootsies down in Nashville, Tennessee For three old drunks in Atlanta in a monsoon but for reasons that escape me or that I refuse to see There's one place they won't let me sing my tunes They won't let me play at the old landmark saloon I have to say, I did a Google search for Landmark Saloon because I didn't know where it was and you don't say where it is in the song Doing my show, the biggest benefit is I get to go to every honky-tonk and bar and club that plays music from great musicians like yourself. And I have so much fun at studying the characters and the characteristics of each one of these places. The bartenders at these places tend to be characters. I think the sort of normal people get fired if you, if you work in a, in a club like this, you have to have a personality of sorts or, or, or you, it's not the right fit for you. If you're just a boring person, you have to leave. You get to see lots of weird stuff and you got to be able to tolerate and, and appreciate it. So, yes. Right. So it sort of calls out the, uh, the sort of bland 
person <laughs> in these clubs of America, mainly and Canada, that play live music, you know, because it's to a certain extent dying and it's hard to make it just on the bar tab, you know, if all you do are open at 9 p.m. till, you know, whatever closing time is in your locale without serving food or having a lunch crowd or some other, you know, means of paying the rent. And so we have seen a lot of the clubs change. And so I looked up the Landmark Saloon. There's only one answer. It surprised me. I thought there's got to be like 100 Landmark Saloons. There's only one Landmark answer in Google search, and it's in Portland, Oregon. So I went, oh, this is his local bar in Portland, Oregon. So tell me about the Landmark Saloon. Well, first I'll tell you, anybody who's ever tried to play live anywhere will appreciate what I'm about to say. So you get a gig and you are excited for it, you prepare for it, and nobody shows up. I mean, I played the opening of a hipster grocery store. Okay, it was like their grand opening. And I brought my gear and I set it up and it hadn't rained in all summer. We had the most torrential rain all day. I, I'm doing a two or three hour set. Nobody's coming into the store. I mean, that's a thing you deal with. I played at a coffee shop in Vancouver, BC, where the owner's like, all right, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to play for the night. I was like, great, I'll do it. I show up. He goes, yeah, I can't pay you. We're not making enough money doing this. I'm like, well, you drag me out here. You put an ad. So we ended up negotiating that he'd pay me 20 bucks to cover my gas and the cost of new set of strings that I put on. And I played the show. And I'm telling you that, you know, you had a mom with her kids coming in to buy coffee and leaving quickly. But then you had this one guy who sat there and he wanted me to play. He'd say, play the Eagles. <laughs> free bird, free bird. It was like that. And I, so I only knew one song, take it easy by the Eagles. So I play it and then I'd finish it. And you'd go play the Eagles. I'm like, how are you so drunk? You're in a coffee shop. at seven 30 at night on a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, I played it for him like 15 times and he loved it every time. So, you know, so you get those kind of gigs. Okay. So then I live in Portland, Oregon and it's a real mecca for musicians. And there's a lot of live music venues, but the only thing flakier than a musician is a venue manager. So trying to get a gig is, it's quite a bit of work because everybody wants to do it. A lot of people will do it for free and they're just lineups of people. I mean, there's like small, nowhere, lame bars that have live bands seven nights a week and they don't pay any of them. You know, I have had this experience with the venue managers. I know the persona that you're talking about, but most people don't know. Why do you think they're so flaky? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I could never put myself in someone's head some of them are amazing to deal with yeah yeah no there's a wide range it's a super wide range but a lot of them are just it's just like an aside for them you know you get an owner manager guy owns a small bar and he just doesn't have time to deal with everything i had one gig at this wonderful place that i was going to play at they have an amazing stage good sound system and uh i had a gig book for friday night it was like a month out and he said yeah you're gonna play do it so i went in a couple weeks later to meet the guy couldn't find him and i'm emailing him and to just kind of confirm that this is happening before I start promoting it. And I'm letting him know, like, I need to hear from you one more time before I start promoting it. He's not replying. So I go in and I talk to the bartender. He's like, oh, yeah, he's real flaky, but I'm sure if he told you to show up, just show up. So I ended up not even showing up and never hearing from the guy again. <laughs> There's lots of places to play, but it's kind of hard to get a decent gig. And I love to go to the Landmark Saloon. That's the place I like to hang out. It's like an old converted house. They have this giant outdoor area and they always have great band. You never heard of any of them, 
but I've never seen a bad band there. And they're all kind of these retro country bands. It could be a swing band. It could be like a outlaw country band. It could be like, so, you know, a guy covering Merle Haggard for two hours. They're all amazing. And every time I go there, I mean, I can go there on a, you know, Tuesday night or a Sunday afternoon. And I'm like, this guy's good. And I'm like, I want to play in a place where they don't just take anybody, where they really have only good acts play. So I emailed the guy, the manager, I figure out who it is. And I email him and doesn't reply. And I email him again and I email him again. You got to, it's like business development in any kind of industry. You got to kind of push yourself a little bit. Finally, he replies and says, oh, uh, send me your links, which I already did, but I sent them again. He seemed kind of interested. And then I never heard from him again. And I was annoyed by it. So I, I was in there one night and I'm watching this uh, singer-songwriter guy play. He's doing a lot of covers of old country. And I ran into this guy, Barna Howard, who's a local musician here in Portland. And I'm talking to Barna and I'm going, man, I'm so annoyed. Maybe I can't get a gig here. It's so frustrating. I really want to play here. He's like, yeah, you know, it's a good place. And I said, I, maybe I'm just not honky-tonk enough because my style is a little folky and, you know, it's not classic old school. I'm like, I'll wear the hat. I'll put on my Stetson. I'll I wear a snack shirt. <laughs> that's how I dress anyway. Like, uh, I could look the part and I know all these old songs too. I could play that instead of my own stuff. So I said to Barna, I said, Barna, have you ever played here? Now, he plays kind of like a, more of a, I'll say, John Denver-y kind of, more angsty than John Denver, I should say. But kind of a 70s kind of country, softer sound. And I said, well, have you ever played here? And he goes, yeah, I played here. I'm like, God damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Your sound's not that far from that. Come on. I was like, come on, man. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a song about how they won't let me play here. So that's going to be my like revenge on the bar because I'm tired of trying to get in on it. So Tim, Tim, yeah, the show booker at Landmark Saloon, you're on notice exactly. that you need to book Robert Landau at your venue. So let me tell you what happened. So I wrote the song and uh, on my Facebook page, I, uh, I don't really use it for personal stuff. I kind of have a personal page and a music page, but I just put music on there. I just put little video clips of me. If I write a new song, I pop, I pop it up there or I want to cover a song that it's you know, it's all obscure stuff that most people haven't heard of, so they're interested. So I wrote Landmark Saloon, and I put the video up of the Landmark Saloon. Four hours later, I get an email from the Landmark Saloon, what do you do on March 29th? And you got your first gig there? I got my gig there, but guess what? COVID shut me down. So you still haven't had your gig at the Landmark Saloon. Exactly right. I love you played at Tootsie's. For those who don't know, Tootsie's is this legendary place on Broadway in Nashville. It's been there forever. Willie Nelson famously passed out drunk in the middle of the street outside of it and had an epiphany, but it's a legendary place. And you know what's funny about that? So I talk about how hard it is to get a gig in Portland. I was on this camping trip. It was like a three-week trip with my girlfriend in my early 20s. That's when I sat in the uh, tropical storm under my tent because we camped for three weeks. We just kind of toured the south. And went into Tootsie's, asked the bartender, I said, hey, how, when can I play here? How can I play here? And he said, I don't know. How about tomorrow, too? <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> yep. And I said, okay. And I played 45 minutes, like, you know, for the tips. So I'm like laughing, like, I could play at Tootsie's. It's a world-renowned, historic place. But I can't play at the Landmarks Lair. It's driving me nuts. <laughs> That's so funny. You and me, baby, we spent our whole lives Trying to see it all 
No continent too far, no city too big, no country road was too small. We've always kept moving, we never sat down to decide where we fit in at all. We traveled together through thick and through thin, but I know I don't know you at all. Seen you in Paris and little cafes, smoking those thin cigarettes. I watched you in Vegas beneath those bright lights, pretending you've got money to bet. Watched you on beaches and in big city stores, though I may have no regrets. I somehow grow sadder when I look in your eyes, and I know that I don't know you yet. Not that I don't love you. If I were to lose you, you know that I would surely die. The problem with us is we learned to love flying before we learned how to fly. We've grown wise together. We've seen how the world works, and though I may have no regrets, I somehow grow sadder when I look in your eyes, and I know that I don't know you yet. Days they grow colder this time of year, and the nights leave you cold and alone. Leave you searching for freedom, compassion, and hope, and a woman I could call my own. Though there are stronger men in this life, men who revel in being alone. When the sun is through shining and the wind bites my neck, I'm looking for you back at home. So I know we wanted to talk a lot about material from your new album, but on Spotify, for me, it put a song off one of your earlier albums, I Don't Know You Yet, as the most played thing on Spotify. I got to say, I love this song. It's fantastic. Well, you know, sometimes you write a song because you have a feeling or you have something you're trying to get out, like, you know, it's like spitting out something that you wouldn't necessarily tell somebody. And sometimes there's an image that catches your eye, just a very micro moment, you know, like there's an expression, aim small, miss small. So you just want to capture that exact moment. And those are the kind of songs I really love when you're just trying to capture a, a moment. This particular song, I, mean, I wrote it many years ago. I was living in a loft in Montreal. I had a girlfriend who was there all the time and we were kind of living there. I was in the other room working. I kind of came in and I saw her kind of looking out the window. And it's interesting when you see somebody when they don't know you're looking at them. And I found myself just kind of staring at her and just studying her for several minutes. Like she didn't know I was there. And she was just standing there, drinking her hand, just looking out the window. It was a pretty view outside the window. Wondering what she's thinking about, wondering what the future would hold for us. And you know, just going through this big existential relationship path. Or just this song just kind of came out of it. Like imagine us 25 years later. Will I know her any better than I know her now? That was kind of the idea. Because you never really know what's in somebody's heart and what really moves them. I mean, anybody who's had a relationship has accidentally pissed someone off or learned something new years later. So that's what that song is kind of about. And it's just kind of a, a projection or a fantasy about, you know, this rich life that we had lived together. And that I still don't know if I know her to the core of who she is. 
Well, it has one of the greatest hook lines of your repertoire in it. The problem with us is we learned to love flying before we learned how to fly. Yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes you get too deep into something and you don't even know what happened. And then you don't have the skills to do it because you didn't take it the time, didn't do it slowly. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it fast because that's the exciting thing about relationships and love is when you're in it that deep. But I was trying to articulate that. Yeah, it kind of implies that we all know how to ride on an airplane, but most of us aren't really pilots. And, mm-hmm. you know, but we're all trying to pilot our own lives and pilot our relationships with each other. And you've been all over the world to Paris and Vegas with this person and still stuff to learn. Stuff to learn and you don't really know what's in their heart. And, and it's interesting because that woman, I'm probably didn't talk to her for 15 years, but did talk to her relatively recently. When I put on my uh, Dark Turns album in 2019, sent out kind of an email blast, and she was in there, and we got reconnected over that because she knew some of the songs or recognized parts of them. And so we get together and talk music on that, text and phone on occasion. Does she know the songs about her? Um, I don't know. Oh, well, now she does. Well, maybe she will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you never played it for her. I like it when the songwriter plays the song to their partner, and it always stuns me what the reaction is, because I, I always thought that if I were a great songwriter, I wrote a great love song and I played it for my partner, that it would make them cry and I would look romantically heroic in her eyes. Or what I found that that doesn't happen <laughs> for the songwriter. You can never write a song like to achieve something. If it's really going to be honest, you're not a good guy all the time. There's going to be elements of it that you're not. And sometimes I've written a song about somebody and I, I tell them like, Hey, take a breath. It's poetic license. It's, I may or may not have these concerns or fears. It's just the character of the song. Right. It's how the rhyme worked. (laughs) Yeah. The sentiment led me there. It's actually funny. There's a song, Oh Mary on my new album. That is what you just talked about. Oh, Mary, you don't have to be afraid The world's a cold and scary place But it's just the world we made Oh, Mary, you don't have to have concern I'll be right here beside you Think of everything we'll earn We've been preparing all our lives for this moment to arrive Let's lean into the promise, let's look into its eyes Oh Mary, I know it seems too good to be true But if you stay there on the shore, you'll never feel the ocean blue. Oh, Mary, I know that it's hard to comprehend. But the feeling when we touch demands, we don't let this thing end. We've been preparing all our lives for this moment to arrive. Let's lean into the promise, let's look into its eyes.
Okay. Let's talk about that. I started seeing this woman. We connected so deeply, so quickly on every level. And it was very intense. She got afraid and kind of backed out a little bit after just a couple of weeks. And I was like, totally bummed. And she's like, well, this is going too fast. I don't want to do this like that, whatever. And, you know, maybe we should take a break. And I wrote this song a week before I recorded A Thousand Little Lives, the whole album. So I'd already had everything all set up and the songs I was going to do. And then just this happened just a week before I was going to record it. And I went to the backyard, a bottle of bourbon and my guitar, and a pad and paper. And I just kind of wrote that song. It just kind of spilled out of my head. It was about what she was feeling and what I was feeling. And I actually did play it for her a few days later. And uh, needless to say, she was embarrassed about it, but loved it. <laughs> it's just a love song to marry. Yeah. Did she cry? Did she hug you? Was she mad? Was she angry? Was she? She wasn't mad. I think, I think it, uh, she was obviously flattered. And I mean, you know, no one had ever written a song about her before. Not many people have songs written for them. It just so captured what we were going through. I think she really appreciated it. So she was your muse. Is there anything that you need to apologize for that you took poetic license on that's not actually about her here on this episode while you have the chance, Robert Landau? <laughs> well, I don't think so. Um, and I'll probably, I'll probably give her a call when we're done this because, you know, we'll be out of hotel. Um, <laughs> I gave you the chance to get out of jail for free pass there on that. No, it was a good song to, for me to also just to make sense of your thoughts and, you know, what you're feeling. So sometimes writing a song is just about getting the books right on the shelf so you can really see what's on there. And how'd you feel when you were done with it? I thought it was great. I was pretty happy. <laughs> and then I was also like, oh, man, I don't know if I should even play it for her because it's pretty intense. And her big beef is that things are too intense. But my great strength and my great flaw is I uh, say what I mean and I mean what I say and I'm direct with people. So decided to uh, share it with her. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. My baby's got walls. She tucks her heart behind them. My baby's got walls. Thinks they keep her safe and warm. My baby's got walls. She thinks that they protect her My baby's got walls That keep her from my arms My baby's got dreams And she'll kind of sort of share them What she really means She's the only one who knows And if I had my way no, I'd make them all come true Cause baby, when I dream I dream my dreams of you Sometimes when she lets her guard down And looks into my eyes I could see what's deep inside her What a beautiful surprise Sort of a related song is Walls, mm -hmm. about a relationship with a woman who has walls. Yeah, I had met this woman uh, online dating, of all things, of course. That's the fashion of the times. And we had spent a ton of time on the phone, and we'd met, of course, but she was a very reluctant person, and she'd been burned before. We're chatting, I'm trying to get to know her, and I could feel that I'm not quite getting 100% honesty out of her. 
and transparency how she's talking to me. And I said, man, you got your walls are pretty high. And she's like, yeah. I said, I don't want to write a song about that. And so I did. And later that night, I actually played this for her on the phone. Did she unfollow or block you or <laughs> uh, no, no. the date? How did it work? What was the outcome of that? Well, we saw each other for quite a while. She's like, God damn it, you nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> we dated for quite a while after that. But. This is a different style song from some of your other work because it's much more of a traditional 12 bar. Totally is. And I record my albums. I just record them by myself, my songs. And it's me and a guitar and some rudimentary harmonica. <laughs> but this one, I was like, you know, I'm in the studio and I'm imagining the budget for like a honky tonk band because this could be a classic. That's how I felt. Yeah. If you could picture any honky tonk band playing this, like, because I, when I heard this, I had the same feeling. I got to be honest, Robert. I was like, this needs a band behind it. And I heard like these other instruments in my head, like a producer might, and I thought, Oh God, you know, don't, don't, don't pretend Doug, like you could even do that. But I'm glad you thought that, like if you could pick any honky tonk band to play this, which one would you pick? Well, I mean, I don't think I'd go totally traditional honky tonk, but there's a couple uh -huh. of kind of, I'll say alt country bands that I really think would be awesome. I would love to you ever hear Sarah Shook and the Disarmers. Uh -huh. I'd love to use her band. And their drummer, I forget his name, but he was in a band called the Two Dollar Pistols also. And he's just, he does these amazing drum rolls and, and transitions that I thought, oh, I'd, like, I'd love to get that guy to play drums on this. And, you know, use Sarah Shook's band to bring this thing to life. And I wish I'd have known that at the time because there's an app called Sleep Tour. You can offer your home to touring musicians. Oh, really? And you kind of put up a profile and you describe your house and how many rooms you have and how many people you can sleep in. Again, this is probably about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Last time Sarah Shook and the Farmers came, they actually stayed at my house. Tour Sleeper, that's what it's called. Tour Sleeper, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're plugging everybody here on our show, and that seems like a really good thing for Backstory Song to support is Tour Sleeper. I don't know your app, but I'm going to look at it and endorse you because I think our touring musicians need all the help they can get because they've been off tour for so long. And when we get them back on tour, they're going to need help. And it's enraging to me that a band like Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, who, I mean, you know, top 20 Americana album, every time they release something just incredible. Like she's cool because she writes these tough guy songs, but she's a woman. Like you don't get that perspective very often. It's so authentic. It's so edgy and raw. And here's a band that can't afford to do their tour if they have to pay for their own cheap motels. I mean, it sucks. <laughs> I was talking to someone last week about this. I think there is going to be a groundswell of music that comes out of this because all of you great artists are locked up in lockdown. And what do you do when that happens? You create art. I think we're going to see just an amazing like tidal wave tsunami of musical output that comes out of this, I hope. And I hope we get to see it live by next summer if everybody goes and gets vaccinated. So that's really important to get vaccinated so we can actually open our clubs up again. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully enough of those places survive too. That's that'll be challenging. You know, you use a curse word in here that makes it not radio friendly. Does that matter anymore? Like, You know, I don't think so. I put that curse word in there because anytime I played that song or even when I play that song live, that curse word, you know, it rhymes with funny trucker, but um, it comes so out of the blue that you can actually hear a gasp and a laugh when people when hear it because it's 
you know, it's a love song. Uh, and then it just comes out of the blue. So it's kind of funny, but I don't think it matters because people are listening to music in their own way. For example, on Spotify, when you post your music, it says, is there any explicit content? But then it defines explicit content as something that's out of context, something that's not descriptive, like just gratuitary or gratuitous, excuse me, uh, swearing. So that song is not marked by Spotify as explicit content because it emotes something specific for a specific purpose and a specific reason. So it's funny how they've kind of softened what explicit language is. Well, I think this word was on George Carlin's seven dirty words list, actually. You're right. So, yeah. So, um, I'm surprised it's not on Spotify's, but maybe we've, we've come a long way since George Carlin. What I love about that line, this feeling, this guy feeling of my baby's got walls and I want to figure out why, but like, if I could find the person that built these walls or caused these walls to get built, man, I would tear them apart. And I think we all feel that way. It's like this uncurable problem that if you could get to the source of it, you'd really go at it and tear it down. Well, you know, uh, there's a, a line in a song that's not yet released. It's going to be on my next album, but it says, it's hard to see the future through the trauma of the past. Hmm. That's what that's about. You know, it's, it's that trauma can stay with you if you don't let it go. Hard to believe that I'm at it again A bottle of bourbon, a paper, a pen Reflecting upon the long year that I've lived The lovers of love, the indifference I give It feels very different this time around I'm not empty or longing or beat to the ground Just awful reflection without no concern Or judgment on what I did or did not learn Big, big hard truth Buried in a thousand little lies Big, big hard truths Hidden in the beauty of your eyes Perhaps it's a sign that I'm just letting go The things I won't learn or pretend to know They say that with aging a new dawn begins Full of wonder and patterns and new kinds of trends Spend my time looking for lessons and themes Searching for meaning where it don't seem to be What do I have at the end of the day? Just solemn confusion and nothing to say Big, big hard truths Buried in a thousand little lies Big, big hard truths So another song from the new album is uh, the title song, A Thousand Little Lies. You know, that's a song, uh, I think I might have overheard the idea of there's a hard truth buried in that lie or something like that. Like I might have been in a coffee shop and I heard it and I wrote it down, take notes on my phone and then I put in a little pad, like an old school guy and it's kind of a pick list for when I'm trying to get some motivation. And it's funny, I was thinking about preparing for this, and I was like, you know, I think I wrote that song like maybe a year ago to the day. It felt like a, a winding down of 2019, 
and I was just reflecting on it. And, you know, the core is there's big, hard truths buried in a thousand little lies. You can't just watch the news anymore. You have to interpret it. You have to figure out what's opinion. Opinion is shown to you as fact. and fact is shown to you as opinion. And you could read three different news sources and get three interpretations of what it is. You know, if something big happens, I watch MSNBC, CNN, and I watch Fox News. Because I want to see what's the interpretation, what are, what's important to a variety of people throughout it. So that idea of big hard truths buried in a thousand little lies kind of got birthed from there. And then the song itself, it's trying to give an honest reflection, an undistorted mirror view of where I've been and what I'm feeling these days. There's a few turns of the phrase in this song that I really love. One is the indifference I give. I thought about that. It's like, I'm giving indifference. You know, when someone's doing that to you, <laughs> you know, consciously giving you indifference, <laughs> indifference is not something you perceive as giving, but when people, someone's doing it to you, you notice that feeling. Yeah. You know, I have a friend, she is dating this guy right now and he's, you know, not quite replying to her texts and phone calls and not quite making the time for her and all. And, you know, you forget that when someone's into you, they're into you. They make the time. They find the time. They do the things. And it was just a reflection, you know, of when you have a relationship that didn't work out, the most logical thing to do is to, or not logical, the most obvious thing that we all do is to figure out what was wrong with that other person. That's why it didn't work. And this is just kind of a reflection of it's something to do with me. It's not them when it doesn't work out sometimes because I give the indifference and I'm trying to get to the root of why that is. Yes, I think that's the definition of ghosting, right? Giving indifference. It's the, the, the new sort of social media thing, that, the word that has involved. Well, I think, I think ghosting, <laughs> you know, give, ghosting is clear and clean. Indifference is torturous. And ghosting, you, you know where you stand. Indifference is confusing and never-ending. So it's a difference between like pouring out a glass of water, that's ghosting, but slowly draining the bathtub, that's indifference. The other thing I like about this song is the whole notes. And, you know, you said it's big, hard truths, but you actually say big, big, hard truths using these whole notes. And I, I actually have started to really love songs that do that because so much of our music is about fast picking and fast playing and rap songs where you rip off a lot of words and a short amount of notes. And this is different. You can say a lot in simple whole noted words. I like that. Yeah. I think the verses are kind of dense. And so I thought the chorus should have more space. And again, a spot where you could kind of digest what you just heard. I'm not going to miss you. Don't even need to kiss you again It seems so long ago This is kind of a big town It still feels like a small town So how am I ever gonna know? Cause I miss falling in love with you Oh, I miss falling in love with you Oh, I miss falling in love with you 
know the things we used to do Well I never go out looking for trouble But trouble's all I ever seem to find Most of the time I know to just keep on moving And not to pay it any mind But tonight I miss falling in love with you Oh, tonight I miss falling in love with you Oh, tonight I miss falling in love with you And all the things we used to do So one of the other songs that Spotify is picking up on your new album is I Miss Falling in Love With You. So that's actually kind of funny. So I released my 2019, beginning of 2019, I released uh, my Dark Charms album. It had been a few years since I played live. Like I had just got busy with life, you know, I was still writing songs now and then, but I went through a crazy creative burst in, I'll say, 18, 19, 20. I released A Thousand Little Lies and I've already got seven songs for my next album, like I had so much material and it was just, I was just able to grab onto it, you know, but this particular song, two things kind of motivated it. One was I had a gig that I was going to play at a series of bars. They're called the commitments bars. It's a company that takes over historic buildings and turns them into pubs and that kind of thing. So they're always really cool venues and they have amazing sound when you play live. The sound checks are great and the equipment is excellent. And so I got a gig, my first gig to kind of promote this new album was playing at one of these bars. I have never been the kind of guy who is good at preparing. Like, if I have to give a speech, I, I'll write it three weeks ago, but I'll never practice it until, like, the morning of. Like, I'm just not good at preparing. I've never been good at it. So here I am. Now, performing live is different. There's not a lot of room for error. You hit the wrong chord, it's obvious. You miss a line, you're frozen. So it's important. I'm feeling the pressure of, putting on a 45 minute set and I hadn't done it in years and I'm trying to figure out how to do it. So in my typical procrastination way, while I'm supposed to be preparing a few days before my gig, I wrote this song instead and ended up playing it at that gig. Again, I said, sometimes I write a song because of a idea, you know, it's not necessarily what I feeling in the moment, but it's an idea that I like. So the idea was, it's not that I miss being in love with you or miss being with you. I miss the process of falling in love with you. You know, we all know that butterflies and the obsessive thoughts about the person. And so it was trying to capture that feeling. I mentioned that old girlfriend from my 20s. I was actually on the phone with her a couple of days earlier, and we were just kind of reminiscing. And she used to wear leather pants. This was before people wore leather pants, or at least in urban settings. Black leather pants come in and out of fashion. Exactly. Well, in Montreal in the 90s, it was not a fashion thing, but she wore them. And it was, you know, she was a tall brunette and long legs. So it was very like, what's the word, noticeable when she would walk into a room wearing those pants. So we were talking about that and, and her leather pants came up. I said, oh, I'm going to put that in a song. And that's what I kind of added that as a layer to this song. But this isn't a love song. This is a song about falling in love and missing it. But you... It doesn't seem like you really are per se in love with this person. No, nope. just miss the feeling. Exactly. Exactly. 
one thing that when you're a songwriter, you're always trying to come up with like a unique or a new way of expressing something that everybody who's ever lived has already expressed and every song is already about. So it's kind of hard to come up with a new angle on it. This is, I think, a new angle on it. The break in the song, you have some really amazing finger picking on your guitar. So tell me a little bit about that and you know, how you go about doing that. Where does that come from? How'd you learn how to do that? I'm about as untrained a musician as you'll find. I <laughs> uh, can't read music. I never took a class. Uh, never, you know, I told you earlier that I had my friend Mark show me a few chords. That's about the extent of my lessons that I ever got. It just comes from doing it and just trying to find a vibe and create the space that you want or fill the space that you want in the song. And, you know, the picking in this one is kind of, it comes and goes, it's softness first, and then it kind of picks up a little bit, it goes back to softness. And to me, it was kind of like a heartbeat, the way it kind of came and went as the song kind of evolved. got nowhere to go There ain't nothing to see I got nothing to do I got no place to be I'm just hanging around Cause it's all shut down Just me and my thoughts In this boarded up town Just gonna shelter in place Gonna make it my own Gonna FaceTime some friends, connect on the telephone Ain't gonna worry about future problems I'll face When it's all back in line Just gonna shelter in place, just gonna shelter in place The new album has a song that's getting some Spotify attention called Shelter in Place, which I call a COVID song. And I think people who are sheltering in place are looking for songs about this experience that we have. And you've written one that's titled that Shelter in Place on the new album. Tell me about this. Well, it's kind of funny because I I joke that it took a global pandemic for me to write a happy song. I wrote this, it was like March 16th, I believe, of last year that we got to Shelter in Place. And then that very first weekend, I said, I'm going to write a song about this. And it was when Shelter in Place was kind of a novel idea. You know, we didn't have any shortages of anything and I had lots of toilet paper. And it was kind of nice to, uh, you know, there's lots to talk about with everybody that, you know, over FaceTime or over the telephone. It wasn't like a uh, thing of discomfort. It felt like a forced meditative retreat in a way. Like, stay in your house, enjoy what you have, be where you are, be present. You're not missing anything anywhere else. I mean, when do we ever feel that? Even if you don't have a fear of missing out syndrome, you're always feeling you should be doing something or being somewhere. All of that just got stripped away from us instantly. So it's just a song about, you know, how that's a liberating thing and this will pass. Let's enjoy it for what it is. And it's funny, you know, here we are, whatever, 10 months later. You know, California went on lockdown or the area in L.A. went on like full on shelter in place lockdown like a day or two ago. You know, the the novelty has worn off. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
I think that's why people are reaching out for the song. Maybe they'll stop listening to it saying, this, I hate this song because I've been sheltering in place for too long. But I've been reading my books. I've been meditating. I've been playing my songs. I've been binge watching. I think this is the first song that references binge watching, which has <laughs> been quite a treat. I, I, I have enjoyed binge watching. And, you know, I think it's good until you're on like the fifth show that you're binge watching <laughs> somewhere after the the first binge watch is fantastic. The second one's pretty good. And then when you're on the fifth show or you're on your social media asking people, who should I binge watch? You, maybe you've over binge watched and it's time to get back. out. <laughs> That's probably about right. Yeah. I gave that up uh, many months ago. And I do think there's a meditative mantra the way you finish this. I'll be dreaming about you. Yeah, it's, it's an oddly uh, upbeat song considering the topic. <laughs> but I have to say, one of my favorite, favorite songs from the album is The Flu, a folk song. And I do have to say, this is the first song that I have listened to that I think is about the flu, which I think is fantastic. And it's also stylistically one of your story songs, even though it's just about the flu. And so I really love your story songs. I wish you would write more of them. I think you have a knack for it and a, and a gift for it. Tell me about the flu, a folk song. So I wrote this song a couple of uh, years ago, way before the pandemic. And I also thought I was a little self-conscious when I released a thousand little lies, the album, I'm like two songs about flu and pandemics, but screw it. it's a good song. I caught the flu. And I spent like four or five days, like just immobilized, trying my best to drink water and keep my fever down and try to get some food down. And it was really remarkable. And I remember it was a Saturday night, started to break a little bit. I had just spent the last four days just, you know, listening to Spotify and, you know, it plays songs that you listen to and like, and you could pick a folk channel or a country channel or whatever. And I was listening to a lot of folk music. As I felt better, I said, oh got to write a song about this very intense experience i don't know if it'll be good or not but uh it's something that's immediate and uh it's pretty all-encompassing for the last week and so i wrote a song kind of making fun of folk songs because they all have the same themes you know everybody really writes songs about trains and everybody all these retro ideas that everybody talks about and they're all very simple melodies and uh so i just kind of wanted to make fun of all that and then just as I was coming to the end of the uh, trying to figure out what the chorus would be, I just kind of thought it was funny that, you know, the line is, I want to be crowned for breaking new ground. No one ever sings about having the flu. And then I go into the description of what it feels like to be immobile and sick for the next few days. I, I just kind of thought it was funny and actually turned out to be a pretty good song. <laughs> It's a great song, and I love the internal rhyming of it, and I love that you actually turn having a cold into a story from start to finish. It's funny throughout. There's all these punchlines in it. Like, my favorite is the way you rhyme sympathy with incessantly, but whatever you do, don't tell your folks about the flu or they'll check up on you incessantly. That's so true. It's like you just want to be left alone sometimes. And when your parents or your siblings or, you know, your loved ones find out, they feel like they're going to help you by bugging you. And you just that feeling of, you know, 
you have a short temper or, you know, you're cranky when you get the flu. You know, you, well, and it, it was funny because, you know, I mentioned I post when I read a song, I posted up on Facebook or something and I posted that up and I'm getting a lot of replies from people saying, oh, my God, that's so funny. That's so great. And my mom replied. She was like, oh, I didn't realize it was so bad. I'm so sorry. She started calling me. I was like, oh, it's not. It's the song. The other thing that's kind of funny in this for me is there's a line in here that says, I hear songs about social injustice, songs about heartache and pain. That rite of passage song where the young songwriter pretends to be an old man who died or is reflecting in the rain. Like, that's like my pet peeve in a way. Like, every songwriter from like Guy Clark to Steve Earle to like Hayes Clark, like all these guys, we all and write these songs where we pretend to be somebody else, like years later. And it feels like a rite of passage song where you could show your imagination, you know, well rounded understanding of the human experience. I was just kind of making fun of myself, too, because in my song, I know I don't know you yet, or I don't know you yet. I'm doing that there. That's me pretending I'm 25 years ahead. So that's kind of a joke between me and myself. <laughs> I love that line in the song because it is so wordy, and you are so self-consciously like jamming all these words into the, the melody in a way that's ironic, and it makes you laugh, <laughs> you know, and... I mean, that, it's clear that that's what you're doing intentionally. It's like, you know, just jamming words into a melody <laughs> that really can't accommodate it. Exactly. Exactly right. The other line that I thought was really funny was, you know, I said everybody writes about trains. Do we really all have wanderlust for hobo times or is it just really easy to rhyme with the word train? Like, who goes on trains? Almost nobody. But every country folk or guy is writing about trains still. And who hops on a train anymore illegally? Exactly. That doesn't, that doesn't, it's like hitchhiking. It doesn't happen anymore. Like, you know, it's like these things have died. They're from another era. <laughs> I guess people are doing those things, but you don't see a whole lot of it. You know, no, sure not. In this day and age, it's interesting. So the Flu of Folk song, I really love it. Is there anything else you want to say about this song? Well, just one more line I thought was pretty funny. So, you know, Merle Haggard has a song, Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down. I was trying to make it fun of myself a little bit because a lot of my songs are about, you know, drinking bourbon and being a tough guy. And the line here says, the bottle won't let me down this time around because a bottle of NyQuil will do. Right. Can't drink the bourbon, but you got to drink the NyQuil instead, huh? Kind of make it fun of my own self-imposed cool guy image. <laughs> I particularly love this song. Love the album. Robert Landau, thank you for being on our show. I am so excited for you to be releasing your fourth album and can't wait to see you again on tour is there anybody you'd like to thank or plug as we close out the show um i don't think so i've kind of plugged enough people here accidentally along the way <laughs> but uh, i just want to thank the people uh, in general the people who come to my shows who comment on my music who give me feedback you do it for yourself you write a song because you have to write it you want to get it out. but getting feedback and appreciation from those who hear it is invaluable so Okay, and I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Landmark Saloon. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding, uh, but I do hope to get a free beer when I come there. So thank you to our listeners. Thank you, DJ Wyatt Schmidt in the sound booth. We couldn't do this without you. And thank you to our social media director, MC Owens. And thank you, all you listeners. Please listen to our artist songs on Spotify so they can get paid. Listen to our playlist, share our playlist so they can get paid. That's our goal and objective. Thank you very much, Robert Landau. Thank you, Doug. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.